this episode and want to hear more amazing mindful content, download the Headspace app for free. I mean, if you were to like do a pie chart of our friendship, I feel like a lot of it would have happened like past midnight, like a lot, like a lot of the time we spent together, <laughs> like the yes. really quality time, you know? My friend Sushmita and I, we really shouldn't be friends. We don't run in the same circles. Our interests in life don't seem to intersect. Our outlooks on much, really. She dry cleans her clothes. I air dry mine. She makes up her mind. I expect to change mine. If we were horses, she'd be a thoroughbred, and I'd be one of those wild ones with matted hair on a beach. The older we get, the further apart our lives can seem to diverge. We don't live in the same city. We aren't hitting the same big life moments at the same time or hitting the same moments at all. As kids, we never went to the same schools, never lived nearby. Our lives were on different conveyor belts from the moment we met. So why are we connected? I have this theory that it has a lot to do with where that connection formed, or more specifically, at what time of day. This is Hibernation. I'm your host, Malika Rao. And today, we're going to look at the story of the American sleepover. The big story and a small one. It starts when we were kids, at a sleepover, at Sush's house. We didn't really know each other at all. We technically met once before, for like a second, through our moms, who met at the temple. This was Texas in the early 1990s. Our families were explorers on a new planet together. So... This random crew of girls with no real connection, other than that our parents spoke the same South Indian language, we show up for a pretty big occasion. Sush was turning 10. It was my first birthday in Texas um, in fifth grade, and I really wanted to do a sleepover. But of course, my school friends were not invited to the sleepover. And so my, my mom was like, well, why don't you invite these girls? It was like, oh, yeah, we met a couple months ago, and now you're spending the night. And that night, I feel like, changed everything. I get flashes of memory when we talk about it. Sneaking into the kitchen, drinking Dr. Pepper straight out of the liter bottle. Everything being too funny to handle. Feeling close to everyone there that night. We were all on the same wavelength. One that wasn't ruled by daytime logic. My brother at the time was two years old and we had all these little alphabet magnets on our bridge in the house. And you and Moha were trying to spell out happy birthday, but we didn't have all the magnets because my brother had probably thrown them or tossed them or eaten them at this point. I don't know. And you guys spelt out half key Vrigdi or something. And it was, it just stayed on, the magnet stayed on the fridge forever. The other girls dropped off to sleep, but Sush and I didn't. Not until we really, really had to. 
there was something too important happening. We became best friends in like a 10-hour period that night. <laughs> and it just was like, and everyone just kind of knew it. And then going forward, anytime we were together and any, all our friends knew it, our community, our families knew it. Every, anyone in the community would be like, oh yeah, we know those two. They're always together. They're always laughing. It's They're so always funny. talking about something. And it was all because of those like sort of concentrated hours when all the other girls went to bed. When I try to understand how it is that Sush and I became friends, I start at this rule her parents had. It explains why random girls from the temple showed up to celebrate her 10th birthday, instead of her actual friends from school. It explains why she talks about us existing inside a community. The rule, it controlled where Sush slept and who hunkered down at her sleepovers, which there were a lot of after that first fateful one. It was a non-starter for them. It was not even an option. They would say, yeah, you can go to the party and then we'll pick you up at 11 or 12. And, um, you know, you can have fun and hang out with your friends and have cake and whatever birthday fun. And then at 11 or 12 o'clock, we're going to pick you up and you're going to sleep in your own bed with us in our house. And it was just not ever negotiable. Was there ever a time you were able to break the rule? Never. Never. Not once. Wow. Okay. Okay. So, wow. So as a child, you never slept at a non-Indian home and never had a non-Indian person sleep at your home? Never. But you had tons of sleepovers. Tons. Like, every other weekend. Amazing. (laughs) Were there ever times you, like, fought back? All the time. It was the source of so much contention and so much battle. Unlike me, Sush was born in India. She was an immigrant, not just the child of them. She has this striver quality I associate more with my parents than with my peers. Even her explanation of why the rule bothered her. There's something so shrewd in her logic a practical sense of why it was wrong for her parents to restrict who she could slumber with. There was this one invitation from before we met. It was the first invitation I'd gotten since moving to Texas and feeling completely lost. And my parents said no, and we fought and fought and fought, and they didn't let me go. They let me go and have dinner and cake and hang out until 11, 12 o'clock. And I went to school the Monday after and all the girls that had spent the night were talking about the sleepover. And I felt so left out and so isolated. And I, and I told my parents, and I think they just, they didn't think that it was as important as my safety. I think they felt like in a home, in an, in an Indian home where they knew the family and they knew the children uh, they just felt more comfortable. And I don't know that that's right in in so many ways, but for them um, in, a, in a country where everyone looked very different for them, to them, from them, um, here in an Indian home, this was where they felt comfortable, you know? What was it that you knew you'd missed? You know, I think I knew that I had missed jokes. I knew I had missed some bonding about, you know, when you're 10, 11, 12, you're talking about boys and school and Mm -hmm. movies and celebrities and all of these things that matter then. 
my memories of you, like young Sushmita, is like you were so socially intelligent. And like, I think you were very aware of like the fact of all the information, even if you weren't getting entry into it. You know, I played sports for that reason so that I could hang out with them after school and we'd ride on the bus together and we'd play these games together and we would come home late in the evenings together. And I knew what my academic goals were, but I never let it get in the way of my of my social goals. Um, and again, I think I just, I really think I just pivoted when I realized that this was non-negotiable and I wasn't going to get this part of things. And I was just going to have to learn to be friendly and outgoing and social. But even then, there was definitely a clear boundary between me and everybody else. Totally. Um, I, I do remember that feeling that even though you had like some extremely close friendships, they would come to your sleepovers. Some yeah. of those. But would they spend the night? I don't remember. No. No. No, they didn't. I wow. just wouldn't tell them. I just wouldn't tell them that it was a sleepover. I would just say, wow. yeah, the party and party ends at 10 and your parents can pick you up. And did that stress you, know, you out? Absolutely. Because yeah. I felt like they knew. I felt like they knew because yeah. all of you were still there. You weren't packing up your stuff to leave. No, it's interesting because now mm-hmm. I'm just doing this like thought experiment. Like if those girls had stayed, they probably would have taught us things because like we exactly. weren't allowed to date and stuff. So like exactly. oh, we were very innocent. Like Very. The- <laughs> Exactly. You know? Like we could have learned so much about our bodies and about boys and like how to date and, you know, you know, all these things. So there's something that happens when the door closes and the sleepover starts. You get to know each other in a special way. You pass information that can't be passed outside the bedroom that doesn't emerge until night. Sush, she was a varsity league sleepover participant. She can stay up all night. Today, she's a doctor, a neonatologist, the associate director of a really large neonatal intensive care unit that treats some of the most fragile babies in the region. And a lot of her work happens at night. Even now, I stay overnight and I'm up at two, three, four, five, six in the morning. In those hours that no one should be awake, I'm awake and I'm talking to the nurses and I'm meeting families and I'm, you know, taking care of really sick babies. And, you know, it's like it, it builds this trust and this bond, I think, even outside of normal friendships and relationships and in, mm-hmm. in I mean, at least in my field, you know, because all the bad things happen between 12 and 6 a.m. And that's where all the learning happens. Like now that there's all these like restricted work hours for residents and fellows, we have seen this generational gap between before those work restrictions and afterwards. We can stay up later. Like we can have difficult conversations with families at four o'clock in the morning when we haven't slept in a day or two. We can code patients, we can perform surgeries, we can do invasive things well because we have done it for so long. All the bad things happen at night, like Sush said. But so does the learning. I think of an ocean. During the day, you're in the shallows, swimming, getting air. But if you choose to stay awake at night, that's like going down into the depths. 
There's not as much oxygen there. It's dangerous. But if you're inclined to visit, you'll find things you can't find anywhere else. So what is it like to be down there in the depths? There's this one study that paints a picture about sleep deprivation that makes sense to me. In 2011, a team of researchers at UC Berkeley had a group of people in their 20s stay up for a night. These people were closely monitored to make sure they didn't fall asleep for even a minute. The next day, in their zombie state, they were asked to rate a series of images. So it was a control group of well-rested young people. Everyone's brains were scanned. The sleep-deprived folks rated many more images as pleasurable And those pleasing images inspired high activity in the part of the brain where dopamine is regulated. In other words, they were getting giddy off stuff that the well-slept people just passed by. I do wonder sometimes if Sush and I are junkies in a way. It always felt like there was something compelling us to stay up. A recognition that we had to fight to get to the good place. At night, we could see things in a way we couldn't during the day. That's why even at Moha's house, when we were in our 20s, I remember auntie saying, okay, Molly, you guys sleep in that room because we know that you're going to be up all night chatting. Everyone else sleep in you know, these other rooms because you actually need to sleep, unlike, unlike Molly and Sushmita. It was, my mom had already died. I think it was, I remember it was like a transitional, a very big transitional moment. I think I was in the middle of medical school and you were getting ready to move to Chicago. Yeah. And we kind of had like a a goodbye sort of sleepover. You gave me this pep talk like about the future that I don't think we could have had anywhere but like lying in a bed together after dark. I don't know. That like 12 a.m. to 6 a.m. period was like a really important time for us to just talk no matter who was there and about no matter what the what the challenges of the situation in that current moment were. You know, like talking about your mom was, was, that was really hard. The sleepover, it's sort of born out of a larger cultural tendency toward extremes, a binge and restrict mode that could only happen maybe to the extent it does in America. It's like a a steam valve, you know, it's, it's, it's the space you give to kids who have their sleep incredibly highly regimented, who do it, you know, in a totally asocial way, um, and who crave for some kind of connection at night. You, you give them maybe a night a night a month. And they sort of abuse that, right? Like, or it can go and out of control. Yeah. yeah, don't know how to handle it. That's Ben Reese. He's a professor of English at Emory University in Georgia. He's also a writer who likes to uncover forgotten chapters in American cultural history. A few years ago, he wrote a nonfiction book called Wild Nights, titled after the Emily Dickinson poem of that name. The Dickinson poem is about the ecstasy that can be found at night. And Ben's book, it's all about seeing the night in a new way too. Because the night is kind of like a place. And in America, it's a heavily controlled one. It has been since at least the 1950s, when the suburbs arose. Those suburbs were full of mostly white, middle-class families. 
and those families followed certain unspoken rules in their new spacious homes. A sort of uh, trait of individualism, training ground for individualism, is to sleep alone, to be apart from everyone else, and to be able to do that, you know, uh, to cross that Rubicon at night from a very young age. And so generations of American kids were raised with this as the ideal. Now, no kid wants this. They crave that social aspect of sleep from which they have been banished. Um, And so the, the sleepover takes on a kind of magical and enchanted quality of breaking taboos. So then it gets associated with other taboos like stuffing your face with candy and watching TV all night and, you know, talking about sex maybe and giggling and, you know. Uh, so, um, so the sleepover becomes this very enchanted space. That enchanted space where taboos can be broken I know it well. And as manufactured as it is, I still feel enchanted when I think of it. Coming up, the end of the sleepover. Hey, it's Danny from Headspace. How was your week? So... I've spent a lot of mine reminiscing about childhood sleepovers. Weren't they just amazing? I mean, it was the best. My friends would come over, my mom would order us a pizza, Dr. Pepper was on tap, and then we'd all pile in the minivan and go to Blockbuster. And you know what? I don't care if that makes me sound like I'm 300. Blockbuster was a magical place and the candy selection was fire. If you know, you know. And of course, we stayed up all night, turning us into preteen zombies. And that was fun while we were young, but it's not ideal in my adult life. Nowadays, when I can't sleep, I turn on a headspace meditation. My favorite is the wind down called Sleeping, narrated by meditation teacher Kisanga. You can find it in the Sleep tab inside the Headspace app. Listeners of Hibernation can download the Headspace app and try it for free. Just go to headspace.com and use code HIBERNATION at checkout. That's headspace.com and code H-I-B-E-R-N-A-T-I-O-N at checkout. Sweet dreams. Before the Berkeley study gave a glimpse into how a sleepover might rewire the brain, another American study offered an insight. To be clear, there aren't any well-known studies that track actual kids at actual sleepovers. That would be pretty hard to manage. But this one comes somewhat close. In 1965, two American researchers named Erwin Altman and William Haythorne put pairs of strangers into rooms for 10 days, morning and night. Like having a roommate only 24-7. After 160 hours of contact, which, if you were to do it in one straight shot, would be about seven days, the roommates exhibited patterns of self-disclosure. They described their relationship in language the researchers deemed demonstrated best friendship. They stood in contrast to a control group, made of pairs of men who worked together but didn't sleep together, and after the same amount of time, described their bonds as casual. 
maybe this result seems obvious. Of course, pairs of people in tighter, more constant proximity would grow closer than pairs with more space between them. Then again, maybe they would grow to hate each other. Plus, seven days, that's not a lot of time to turn into best friends. Yes, Sush and I did it in a night, but still. The study, it was done on men in the Navy. Just the thought of these burly sailors opening up to each other at night, becoming best friends in a week, it feels like a testament to what that time can do. Sush, in another life, I could see her being a sailor. She's tough. She gets the job done. So, to me, the mystifying, thrilling fact of our sleepovers was often that this person with eyes so trained on her path chose to divert her nighttime energy to me, to us, to what we were building. I felt like part of a team, even or especially this one time when we were actually trying to get to sleep. Part of the reason that we didn't fall asleep is because we couldn't fall asleep. Was it always like that? Why do I only remember it happening that one time? What, what, do we no. Do- <laughs> I think we just got used to it. We okay. were just like, we were I like the heat, so. we would. Maybe that's, that's another reason. But it was also worse in the summer. It was the dead of summer. Oh, it was yeah. like... We figured out a way that when we finally fell asleep, we would, in synchrony, wake up without even telling each other it's time to wake up. We would just both sit up at the same time walk over to my sink, grab a glass of water, (laughs) throw it on the bed. (laughs) And then sleep again for like 30 minutes until it became warm and muggy. And then we would wake up in synchrony, walk to the sink, I see. I thought it was one night. I, I, and I don't know how the idea came. Like, I don't, I just remember it happening overnight and then waking up the next day and being like, that was amazing. <laughs> like, just knowing that something amazing had happened to like captains on a ship where it's like, the ship must like avoid it. the iceberg. Like, you have to yes. wake up every 15 minutes. Like, we, like, we were so we on the so job. Insane. It's like, Slept with one eye open, like absolutely. We just knew it, (laughs) and we'd be like, "Ah, it's getting hot." We'd get up, go get the water. In the daytime, in the light, certain things are apparent that maybe aren't so obvious at night. As Sush and I got older, our surroundings changed. My mom leased a luxury car. We moved into a two-story house, close to the city. My brother and I started going to a private school. Her family was on a different track, a different conveyor belt. Going to your house, I I felt um, free in in ways that I didn't at my home. I felt like you guys um, had much more open conversations than I did at our at our house. I felt like you knew things um, mm. that I like, you know, or you talked to your parents about things that I that I didn't. It's funny because we both grew up with strict parents, but I felt like your parents were so relaxed in ways my parents weren't. Like, I felt like there was permissiveness that wasn't in my house, which you wouldn't necessarily, maybe you wouldn't think that. 
you know, I remember like when you got a job at uh, Circuit City and like, <laughs> just like, it felt like your parents were also like, they were doing like American assimilation differently than my parents were. Like sometimes I would think about you during the week and like, it was so mysterious to me what your days were like, what school was like. I think I felt like you guys were, this is going to sound weird, but I really felt like you guys were just really well off. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you were rich in a way that we weren't and we wouldn't be. It never, it just was like, it just was, is, I just felt like it is what it is. Like it was never like this, you know, I never cared. I never thought like, why? And I never felt like you in any way judged our family or, or me, but I think that's what made it so, I think that's what made it work because I remember other people in our group who also were well off or were also going in pri- to private schools. I remember them saying to me, oh, you wouldn't understand because you're not in private school. Oh, this is a private school thing. And I remember feeling like so judged and so upset that that would come out of someone else's mouth. Um, you know, and, and it never came from you, obviously. But those people, I really don't, I still to this day don't get along with them because I always felt very judged and very much like there was a divide socioeconomically. I guess I've never wow. really said that out loud. <laughs> it's funny about comparisons. They're so relative. Going to Sushi's, I felt a sense of comfort I didn't feel at home. Things at my house were frequently on the fritz, bought used, whereas in Sushi's, they seemed eternally new, even if they weren't as exciting. Our security system beeped regularly, day and night, a glitch that couldn't be fixed. It wasn't replaced for years. I remember another visitor once remarked on the beeping, and Sush laughed and said she'd stopped noticing it. I realized I had too. And I realized she was a participant in our household. You had a little story in, in Wild Nights about asking a question in, in a class of like how many of you have, maybe it was how many of you have shared a room with someone. Yeah. And I think you had an Indian person raise their hand. Yeah. And, 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 and the two black students in the class also who, you know, both said, well, they got their room maybe, you know, when the older sibling moved out or at an age that was well beyond what the, where the white kids were, um, you know, in their own room from two, three, four at the latest. Ben's book talks a lot about class, about capitalism. One of his main points is that the standard model of American sleep is really expensive. Think about it. A room for every person? <laughs> and of course, the standard model of American life is expensive. Or at least the life we're meant to aspire to. When I talk about this kind of stuff in public, every once in a while people will share stories with me. And and one man told me who was from somewhere in East Asia and had grown up in a family where, where the parents and a large number of siblings slept in the same room. And they came to the United States and they were uh, in kind of a small home where they still had to do some of that. And uh, he invited a friend over and the friend said, oh, where's your bedroom? And he said, well, this is where we sleep. And, and, the, the, and, the, and the kid looked at him and said, you all sleep in the same space. And there was a sort of shame, you know, a shame of doing this thing that 
most people in most times and places in human history have always done and couldn't imagine doing otherwise. Shame seems built into the experience of inviting a visitor in, at least in America, where competition fuels so much. I felt that shame about my own house, my own parents, even though we had all the bedrooms, the two-car garage, because we also had things that didn't fit the script. And yet, I never saw other people's homes as anything but mystical. Simply being allowed to step foot inside, that felt like a gift given. Because there are a lot of ways to live. And you don't see them if the walls never come down. So I kind of, I know the the short, you know, the short version from the book of you were... You went to the kibbutz kind of in search of a, a more a more socialistic, experimental lifestyle. I went because I was 21 and, <laughs> or 22 and seemed like a cool thing to do. And the, the rationalizations came later. But yes, we'll go with that. Ben got interested in sleep to begin with, partly because of this experience he talks about in his book. One that reminds me a bit of the world I know. In his 20s, he found himself halfway across the world on a kibbutz. The word kibbutz means essentially gathering. It's used most popularly to describe a network of back-to-the-land settlements, largely populated by Jewish inhabitants in and around Israel. These farm-based collectivist communities began to crop up at the start of the 20th century. In its purest form, the kibbutz essentially poses a counter-argument to the modern way of life. And a cornerstone of an individualistic society is the nuclear family. Whereas in the kibbutz... Adults had to bond together as one massive family. So the solution to this, as it has been for a number of kind of experimental or utopian communities, was to make raising children one of the jobs, just as, you know, picking avocados or, uh, you know, driving a tractor would, would be somebody else's job. For the most part, they were cared for collectively and slept collectively. It's not that we lived on a kibbutz, but Sush and I, we were spun off from our parents. Our parents were new to America. They were figuring it out. I don't know that we really trusted them as guides. Huddled up in our bedrooms, we talked at length about them, how baffling they were, how harsh, but also how hard their job was. One morning, we heard a parent practicing an American accent using an instructional tape. That tape became a joke for us. But I think, at some level, the humor was a way to deal with fear, with concern for our parents, whom we loved so much. We were better equipped for the country in certain ways, and so we slept together and exchanged ideas we never would with them, no matter how much we might have wanted to. We explained periods to each other, and bras, and radio hits, 
and the American dreamscape. And I think that's how we learned. So yeah, the nuclear family unit did break down a bit in our accidental little commune in Texas. Our parents could be themselves with us, could parent without making distinctions. I mean, your dad would blast prayers at seven o'clock in the morning and it was very normal. I just expected it. I was like, okay, it's like 5 a.m. We're finally going to sleep. In a couple hours, uncle's going to blast the prayers and we'll wake up then. It's fine. I was like, yeah, this is what we do. And I think my parents felt the same way. My mom would wake up and do her prayers and ring her bell and, you know, and and the house would be open and and loud and bustling. And they never had to worry that they were um, acting in a way that you weren't familiar with. The sleepover, it's kind of a dying tradition. Around 2010, new terms started to appear. The half-sleepover, the sleep-under, the late-over. Many parents do what Sush's parents did, pick up their kids before bedtime. Some articles blame a rise in, quote, tiger mom parenting across ethnicities. The New York Times did a story recently on how gender and sexuality awareness has changed sleepovers. The father of a boy who identifies as queer explained why he bars same-sex sleepovers. A teen who transitioned gender from female to male spoke about a sense of loss. When he started taking testosterone, his parents limited sleepovers only to boys. He said he missed the playfulness of his relationships with his girlfriends, that it seemed to end once the sleepovers did. Today, Sush has two babies, a house with bedrooms for everyone, and she's not sure about sleepovers. She talks about the risks, pressures in the age of social media, My cousin's wife recently mentioned something connected. How at one sleepover at their house, my niece and all her friends tunneled into their separate gadgets. When I was young, there was no portal as exciting as another person. No phone could compete. I wonder if that space Sush and I dived into, if it's sort of closed up at this point. I guess our sleepovers really ended when Sush went to Tams. I was so young. We had just turned 16, I think, when that happened. And I absolutely was really excited for that freedom. Tams, or the Texas Academy of Math and Science, it was a destination for so many kids in our Indian community. It was basically a free boarding school set on a campus for kids to skip junior and senior year and move straight to college-level classes. You focus on math and science, and the idea is you'll probably get into med school and skip ahead there too. Jump the conveyor belt, speed it along. It's open to everyone, but de facto, there were all these East Asian and South Asian kids who got in, who'd been gearing up for this kind of program, sort of by accident, all their lives. Kids like Sush. I've been thinking about this interview a lot, actually, since you asked me about it. And I think sleep is just so interesting. I hadn't 
tied it to all of these different things. Mm-hmm. Um, Tams actually is a great one. Yeah. My closest friends, you know, my closest, closest friends, even now, 20 years later, are my Tams friends mm-hmm. because we slept together in this in this big hall and, you know, it was, we were 16. Something between like, between when, when normal nighttime ends and normal daytime begins, there is this period that is, I don't, I don't know, something happens to your mind, body, soul. I don't know. I have this sharp memory of dropping Sushmita off on move-in day. Today, I see it as a surreal vignette. Why was I there on this momentous, emotional day for a family that wasn't even mine? It's almost inappropriate to me now. If I have a kid, I don't know if I'd let them do something like that, enter another family's big moment. I suppose I don't know if I'd let a child enter a family's home as freely as both ours did. But I hope I can. Because... Sush told me something I never knew that fills out the picture. It it really did feel like my family was coming to like send me into a new life. And I remember I negotiated with my parents about moving day and I was like, yes, you guys can come and do these things, but only if Molly can come with you. And they were like, but do you think she really would want to? And I was like, yeah, she she would. I think she would. And they're like, well, it's going to be really kind of weird and emotional. And I was like, no, I think I think that she and I both need that. And I remember us talking a lot, just you and me talking a lot about what it would be like at Tams. And um, we never really I think it was understood that, you know, we would we would stay friends. But it was a weird time because there was no we we didn't have cell phones. We didn't Mm -hmm. have FaceTime. Mm -hmm. And I remember that so so well it was like it, it you just it just felt like my sister Malika my brother Thages my parents they were coming to drop me off at this at college I, I have a memory of you in your new room um and you were just so you know because you're so good with people you were like immediately friends and it was just like oh she's gonna like she's gonna be fine like she's gonna thrive I remember you guys driving home and later you told me you were like in the car your dad and they just just sat there and drove home and me and your mom cried the entire 30 minutes home because we just couldn't believe that you were gone. So she brought me out of our sleepover into her daytime. We floated up from wherever we were in the ocean and got out onto land. Things couldn't be the same after that. A time in our lives was over. But there's still stuff to discover on land. Even if they're fossils that complete a story. I never knew the details on her side of how I happened to be there on move-in day. I don't even remember telling her I cried in the car with her mom or that I even cried. But Sush does. She holds certain memories, and I hold certain ones. And in all of them, we're sisters. Next time on Hibernation, how trauma affects sleep. Hibernation is brought to you by Headspace Studios, 
in partnership with Spoke Media. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and follow us in Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. Our show is written and hosted by me, Malika Rao. We're produced by senior producer James Kim, with help from myself, Erica Huang, Brigham Mosley, Damira Pierre, and research by Hannah Ray Montgomery. Our coordinating producer is Sharita Lynn Solis, with additional production help from Cody Hoffmachel, Kelly Kolf, and Will Short. Original music and sound design by Erica Huang, with engineering by ABF Creative. Additional music from Firstcom. Our spoke executive producers are Keisha TK Dutess with Keith Reynolds and Aliyah Tavakolian. Our Headspace executive producers are Leah Sutherland with Morgan Seltzer and Sam Ragaway. Special thanks to the folks you heard from today, Sushmita Yalapargada and Benjamin Reese. Mm-hmm.